Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Ramen Club podcast, where we have some great discussions with some of our members here at Ramen Club, see what they're up to, how they built their businesses, their tips, tricks, and so on. So I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Richa Prasad, who's the co-founder of Coach Viva. She's not only a longtime member of Ramen Club, but also one of our most active hosts and has been hosting tons of the Saturday and Wednesday co-working sessions for people in the sort of America's time zone. So it's my great pleasure to kind of introduce you. Yeah, thank you. It's been it's been awesome being part of Ramen Club and especially hosting. So yeah, just to kick things off, how would you describe what Coach Viva does? Like it was your kind of elevator pitch to people. Yeah, Coach Viva is a weight loss coaching program. And it's specifically for men and women who have been trying for decades to lose weight. Some of them have even have even reached their goal, but then regained it because maintenance has been hard. So it's specifically that subset of people that we help. Awesome. Definitely had my kind of share of struggles there as well. So uh, probably signing up to you very soon. Before kind of going a bit deeper into Coach Viva and stuff, I'd like to kind of go back in time a little bit and just hear a little bit more about your background and how you got into entrepreneurship in the first place. Kind of what what sort of were the things that led you there? So this Coach Viva is my first company. I've never done any entrepreneurship before that. Before this, I was at Microsoft and I was a PM I worked first on developer tools, so Visual Studio, um, the base, like the editor and the build system and everything in Visual Studio code. I think that's using a lot of what I used to work on. So I worked there for four years and then I moved to Cortana, which was more consumer facing. Cortana is like a Siri compete kind of thing. I think it's just part of HoloLens now. So that's what I was working on. But then as I was working on all of that, I noticed that I had a lot of struggles with my own health. I felt there was a lot of conflicting information. And I think I, I'm someone who, who I think trusts coaches very quickly, especially when I don't know anything about the area. And then as I went through my journey, I started noticing there's a huge gap between what is being offered and what I felt is a stitched together solution to get people to actually change their behavior. Because weight loss is not, it's, it's a bigger thing than that, right? It's about behavior change. And you know, I think everybody kind of knows what to do. I don't think that is a mystery. And yet a lot of the solutions that we see are about what to do. And the thing that is often missing is the psychological part that is needed in order to make the behavior change. It's a simple understanding of like, what seems like conflicting information is not actually conflicting information. Like there are principles behind all of this that makes you make sense of everything that looks conflicting as well. And I didn't see anybody offering both of those pieces in a way that makes sense from the start of your journey all the way to the end, because what those things are that you need to do, what you need to work on changes on a stage by stage basis as you, as you, as you transform. And once I spotted that gap and going through my own personal journey, I felt there was a big gap there, especially because I think a lot of the people who are offering the solution are coming from a non-engineering background, right? So that's a very different lens with which to solve the problem than where I was coming from, which is a very engineering-focused background. So I had a very like, you know, a very like almost like lean startup kind of approach to my own weight loss, right? <laughs> it's like you collect data, you observe, you like synthesize, you adjust, that kind of thing. And there are these principles that go behind behavior change that I felt were just missing and people were just, you know, doing random subsets of the implementation. 
And I felt like I could add value there. One of the questions I always ask myself is, is my day worth it? Am I doing the most that I can in the day? And I felt over time as I spotted this gap that actually I could provide more value in trying to solve this problem because I saw there was a gap in like almost like a founder problem kind of fit. And my co-founder, Lucy, she is also an engineer and was at Microsoft and was going through her own journey. And we connected to a quantified self meetup and we started chatting about this. And then I, I kind of talked about this to her and she was actually my first, like almost like a customer interview. She was my first customer interview. It was on October 1st, 2016. And I, I told her this and her first question was like, this makes no one sense. Why is no one doing this? And, and I think the answer is it's very hard to see this unless you've spent four to 10 years kind of just grappling with this and like, especially solving this with the kind of approach that we had. And yeah, and that was the gap. And in fact, I didn't even want to start a company in the beginning. I actually looked around to see if someone was already solving this. I'm, I'm a huge fan of if there's a shortcut to, <laughs> to, to getting there to, to how, the thing that I want to work on, then that's better if someone's already funded. But then I looked at like a lot of the health companies. I remember looking at Fitbit. I remember looking at MyFitnessPal. I remember looking at like a whole bunch of companies or startups. And I that was one thing that I was looking at, like, what are they solving? And the second part was, is the company small enough? My experience at Microsoft had like taught me that there is a, once you have a certain number of employees, and if you're not like one of the early employees, it's very hard to like steer the ship or like actually have influence in like the direction. And uh, I didn't find anything that fit both of those criteria. So I was like, okay, I really want to work on this. And if that means I need to, to start a business, I will do it. And that's how I ended up here. So there's quite a few threads I want to go into there. But something I find interesting about, you know, whenever we have these kind of conversations with people is like, there's no like sort of standard template for like someone that becomes an entrepreneur. What I mean by that is like, I used to think that like everyone that became a successful entrepreneur like you was sort of you know, had a lemonade stand when they were a teenager and was always like starting businesses and had like was drop shipping at university and doing side hustles. And it's just not really true, is it? Like, like you were saying, this is your first business. Yeah, I, I 100% think so. And I think, yeah, there's definitely the stereotype yeah, about who a founder is. And I feel like I don't fit a lot of those stereotypes, to be very honest. I think you pointed out one for sure. Like, I don't think I had lemonade stands growing up or anything like that. <laughs> I think I always, I always wanted to solve important problems. and But then I was always happy to help someone who was already solving that problem. I didn't have to be the person who started it. I think that's a huge one. I think a lot of another stereotype that I hear is like, you know, founders hate working for other people. I wouldn't say that's true for me at all. I, <laughs> I actually really enjoy working with people. And I have I have no problem not being the person in, in, the, in the driver's seat. It's okay if I'm like second in, in, you know, it's the second person or the third person helping out. But to me, the problem that we're solving is more important. And I think the fact that everybody's bought in on the mission, whether you're first, second, third, or even the 10th or 50th person. And I mean, that is such a great place to be at when everybody's focused on solving a problem. And that just elevates the entire team. And I think that's what makes day-to-day work a lot more interesting, even if I'm not the person who started it, if that makes sense. For sure. It sounds like you and your co-founder, you sort of discussed how like it seemed clear that there was an opportunity there to to be explored. Was there anything that you did that made you think, right, there really is something here? Like people call it validation. Some people say you can't validate an idea. I think there's just a misunderstanding about what that word means. I know there's no, there's no guarantee with research that something will work, but you can just reduce the risk on it sort of thing. Was there anything you did around that? So I... I realized as I was going through my journal, so I'm moving to Lisbon in two weeks. 
And as part of that, I've had to clear my house and I, I've gone through some of my old journals. And it's interesting to see that this idea has been at the back of my mind since 2014. That's my earliest journal talking about Viva, but not in the form that it is right now. And so I had been thinking about it for a long time. And as part of doing that, I had been clearly talking to people, right? Like I joined Quantified Self Group. I was just like, I was in these groups because I was interested. I didn't know I was going to start something. So I think like it goes back to the validation, I feel like starts a lot more informally if you are at least approaching it from the way that I approached it, which is there's a problem I'm interested in solving. I understand people do entrepreneurship, not just for that reason. I think there's like two or three other kinds of reasons people do do these things. But if at least that's what you're doing. I think if something grabs your interest, I think go for it. I think there's a lot of informal validation that happens just by hanging out with groups doing that. And from talking to quite a few people, I realized that other people also felt the gap. But I think like at least in our area, there is not a market risk as much as there is a solution risk, right? I don't think anybody can contest that there's a huge market for weight loss. Yeah, <laughs> of course, yeah. I think, I think there's a solution risk in, in the sense that, you know, you kind of hear, like literally when I started Coach Viva, I came across a company that had started a weight loss thing and then they, they quit after a year and they said like, there's no way to solve this problem in a way that lasts. And, and they just quit at that point, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty around solutions. So I think like, yeah, the informal part. And then formally, when I started doing those interviews, I was mainly looking at people in the quantified self movement because they tend to be more like analytical, know about tech. And I think people who have worked around tech or products, I think tend to be a lot more open to being interviewed. It's a lot harder when I approached people who were not in tech or not in product and asked to interview them because they seemed to think I was going to scam them a lot of the times because I had no credibility. This so, like, so nosy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah, once I started doing the interviews, I think I interviewed around 25 between Quantified Self and then some of, and then I also found a nutritionist who was very kind and, and decided to ping her email list on behalf of me. And I got a lot of interview people to interview from there. And one of the biggest validations that I got, I think I validated the right thing that people are looking for, which is basically they want insight into what they're doing wrong and what they should be doing. But the way to solve that problem, and I don't think we have still solved it completely, is how do you give that insight? And that has been the biggest journey that we have been on since we started. And when you were creating this business and maybe you're a little bit further along and thinking about like, you know, how you're going to sustain yourself, did you ever think of a ramen profitable target or a revenue target where perhaps you and your co-founder didn't have to work so much or could stop working? Like, and how did you sort of like come to that figure? Yeah. So we did have a ramen profitable target more as a milestone, not necessarily as a way to way to reduce working. I think given the the mission that we have, I think we can't start working at the Robin profitable target. But it was it was about twenty thousand dollars for us per month. Yeah, and um, just just for um, others' benefit, that's um, these are one time payments, right, rather than subscriptions. Yeah, at the time we were doing subscriptions. Yeah, uh, yeah. and we've changed the model since then. Sure. All right. And uh, I think your other question was how did we come to this? It was it was basically backwards math. So it was like, what is my budget? What is your budget? <laughs> and then, okay, okay, so this is how much we need to make. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Post tax, and then multiply by two, and then like add operating fixed costs on top of that. So that's how we get over that number. 
Yeah, is that, um, do you find it's quite seasonal as well? Or is it like yeah. fairly consistent? Weight loss is pretty seasonal. I would, uh, but I think this year, one of our videos went viral. So technically we should be in the off season and I should be making less than earlier in the year, but June and July have been like through the roof for us. Wow. That brings me on to one of my next questions just around how you've grown basically to this stage. Like, I mean, I know that a big part of that is YouTube, but like, how has that kind of evolved since you started? Yeah. So when we first started, I think I had the wrong mindset when it comes to growth. I was trying to, I remember explicitly thinking, let's do the things that have a quick turnaround time in terms of revenue. And, um, and then once we have round profitability, we can do the longer term things like content marketing. It's backwards, is at least for weight loss, because it's such a red ocean. And people are so jaded and so inundated with solutions. The way to stand out is to first build that credibility. So I'll, I'll give I'll give a contrasting example, if that makes sense. So I think a lot of us have, have you know looked at, for example, Arvid calls, you know, the teaching thing that he had, right? He talked about how he posted inside a Facebook group and people jumped on it. You did that, you do that in weight loss groups, you get kicked out of the group, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So what I'm about to say is like certainly bias towards a very saturated market. I think if you don't have a saturated market, I think there are ways to get around and profitable quicker than than the solutions we have to try. But if you're in a saturated market, I would say we should have started the content marketing in the beginning, but we did not. What we tried to do was we tried ads. But ads is like completely not a good solution if you don't have a good funnel already. It's basically a trash fire. (laughs) (laughs) You're just burning money at that point. Is it quite a high cost per click as well because it's a competitive market? Exactly. It's high cost per click. You can't use certain words. You can't use certain images because, you know, like before afters, anything that causes people to feel like it's it's kind of like on the gray area, right? Even things that I don't think should be in the gray area are in the gray area because, because of how advertising has gone. So that was a bad idea because I think anyone who's trying to do ads first, you always want to get your funnel numbers down and organically, and then you add ads on top of that. You don't go the other way around, which I totally didn't understand. We did a lot of social media posting and it worked for the first, I would say, three to four months because uh, we had pretty large personal networks between Lucy and I, my co-founder of Lucy and I. So we got a lot of people in the first three to four months. And that was a great first step. I totally recommend tapping a personal network. But the problem is it gets tapped out. And then you're kind of tapped out your entire network. We tried to do partnerships uh, with other adjacent coaches. So like people who were maybe doing food allergy coaching, that kind of thing. And I think we didn't have our audience honed in enough. So we picked partners where their audience didn't necessarily care about how we talk. So we tend to be very like analytical and very like kind of data-driven and engineering focused on how we solve problems. And that vibes with a certain audience. It does not vibe with an audience, which is a lot more, let's say, wellness, a little more flowy kind of focused, right? And we were not discerning about that. So we wasted a lot of time trying to do these kinds of things. And the problem with partnerships is also you do them. And then like, unless you have like this webinar that is evergreen and going on, it's, it's a one-time thing. So about like two years in, we or one to two years in, we switched to YouTube. And I would say like no growth tactic has worked for us unless we have spent two years and at least 
$10,000 learning how to use that channel. Yeah. That's what my experience coming from a completely non-marketing background. I have zero marketing background. So that's what it requires me to really understand what I'm doing. Wow. Two years and $10,000 spent <laughs> on getting good at it. But you've you have built up some pretty great traction on that. You mentioned one of your videos went viral recently, for example. What does like a viral video look like in terms of views? And like, what's your sort of typical view count these days? Yeah. So we did a 2 million view 28 period once the video went viral. Wow. And that was that was crazy. We used to do around, I think, 70K a month or something. So it really jumped. So, but the thing with YouTube is there is the recommended algorithm and then there's the search algorithm. And the kinds of videos that work for one don't work for the other. And it's almost this difficult transition that we have to go through where I think when you're starting off, search, nobody knows about you. So the algorithm doesn't know who to suggest your videos. So we were very search focused when we first started. And that has more of a linear growth if you hit the right keywords. But then at a certain point, we struggled to switch over to completely recommendation because we had something working, but you're almost like kind of just letting, it's like kind of, you, you just need to let go and be like, the thing that is working, I'm not going to do anymore. And I'm going to start doing recommendations. But the thing with recommendations is you get a huge hit and then the views come down again. So the views are down again to like a couple, it's, it's in six figures. So it's much higher than it was before. Before it was in five figures a month. But the recommendation system kind of goes like this. So you're kind of like on, on that creator producing wheel, basically, as you, as you need to keep producing stuff or like updating things to, to keep your views up. What are the main outcomes that you look for from that? Is it partially a brand thing or is like a, the main thing like traffic that you're sending to your website from those videos? Yeah, I would say the main thing is traffic. I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, you know, they're saying, oh, like, should we try YouTube or should we not? It's obviously people consider a lot of effort, obviously making videos compared to other kinds of content, that kind of thing. Are there certain types of people or businesses where you would say you would recommend it kind of thing? Is, is it easy to tell what sort of businesses it will work better for? Definitely for certain businesses, it's better. I think, first of all, if your audience is on YouTube, which I think a lot of people are, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So I think most people are on YouTube. So I think that works. I think if you want to build credibility, I think video is the fastest way to do it. So if you're in a red ocean, like like weight loss, it really helps. So one of the comments we used to get when we first started was you guys don't look professional. And I never could understand what that meant. Like, should we be dressing up more? Do we look too young? Like what's happening? Turns out that was just like code for, I don't trust you because I haven't heard of you before. And right. the second we started making videos, even though we only had like, you know, like 20 views a video, suddenly nobody was making that complaint anymore. So yeah, I think if if you're in a niche where it's red ocean and you really need to build credibility, and if you have a message that is different, then like it takes education to to make people understand what you're talking about. I think those are the the, the, the reasons I would say it's really helpful to do that because they see your face, you can show them what you're talking about and, and build credibility that way. Yeah. So it's kind of more authenticity rather than someone else you didn't do it because they can see, oh, this is a real human that's like bothered to make a video and upload it to tell me more about how I can lose weight sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now I get that. I'd like to dig in a bit more into like, you know, the sort of approach you have at Coach Viva. So like in particular, you mentioned earlier, you felt that a lot of existing services didn't really think about the psychological aspects of it. Like, can you dig into that a little bit more? Like what you mean by that? 
I think there are these psychological beliefs that people have as to what they need to do in order to accomplish weight loss. And I think it's funny because these are the same kind of beliefs people have for any kind of long-term goal. So there's a no pain, no gain mentality. This is one of the things that that people have is like, I have to do extreme things. If I'm gentle with myself, I will not get there. I think this is very similar to hustle culture, something that I'm still <laughs> changing my own beliefs on. So like, the, that's a huge belief that keeps people back, right? There is a belief about things they will lose as they lose weight. So there's also fear of success, right? Like if I do lose the weight, I'm afraid that I'm just going to be an angry, skinny person because I cannot eat what I want. I cannot go out to places that I want. So there are all these beliefs around what that would look like as well. There are beliefs around if I say no to food that other people are giving me, they are going to not like me anymore. My friends are not going to like me anymore. Or my family's not going to like me anymore as much because that's how they express love and I'm rejecting their love, right? So there are all these, I think, very, and you can draw parallels to this to even like, you know, like entrepreneurship, right? Like my fr friends and family want to go out. I'm saying no to them. Like, you know, are they going to like <laughs> feel bad or like I'm a loose connection with them? You know, these kinds of things. So there are these like emotional states that I think people go through when they get into any kind of behaviors change. And like, and what we are trying to do is map the stages. And we have seen this over time. That's part of the byproduct of doing this work is we're not just looking at weight loss. We're looking at behavior change as a whole. And when you draw those emotional states out, you start noticing, okay, when people come in, there's some marketing psychology, of course, which is like immediately when they come in, they're like, this is not going to work for me. I'm going to fail because I failed so many times before. That's the first thing that they think about. Okay. How do we combat that? Like, what is the mixture of like online and offline solutions to like help them get across that emotional state? So they, are, they can even have the mental bandwidth to go to the next emotional state, right? Which could be like, okay, I have gotten started, but how do I know this will work for me? And then that could be a mixture of giving them information, but then it could also be a mixture of showing them people like them who have succeeded at the same time. And then you go to the next emotional state, which is they start doing it and they're feeling like, okay, this is working. I'm excited about this, right? But now I'm nervous to do my check-in, right? <laughs> it's just like every seven days we ask them to do a check-in. Now I'm nervous about it. How am I going to do that, right? Like, what if I don't do it right? Like a lot of people have this fear, like I'm not doing it right, right? So how do you reassure them that it's not about accuracy? It's about momentum. It's about consistency, right? So that those are some examples of like emotional states, like three of the probably 50 emotional states we have figured out. And like, I kind of see it as like a progressive thing of like helping them move from one to the next to the next. And I think that's how I see this problem, which is or the solution to this problem is like, what are those emotional states? What kind of a person is this person? Like what kind of segment or psychographic they're in? And what is needed to get them going from one place to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And if we nail it and they get all the way to the end, they get to their goal. And not only do they, do they get to their goal, they're really happy with how they got to their goal, which was something that I didn't recognize the first three years, I would say, is we got a lot of people to their goal. But I don't think they were happy with how they got to their goal because I don't think they had worked enough on their psychology part. I can really see your PM background shining through. <laughs> you kind of like... You know, obviously you're going to be more successful the more people hit their weight loss goals. You kind of work backwards from what are the things that stop people from hitting their weight loss goals, whether that's psychological or otherwise. And like, what is everything we can do at every stage to help people overcome those frictions sort of thing? Is that, that sounds, is that right? That is exactly right. Yes. Oh, I love that. <laughs>
Yeah, definitely learning a lot from this. In terms of like how you may have done things differently, knowing what you know now, like are there any sort of obvious things you would have changed from the beginning? The first thing I would have done is charge for the reality of our solution and not an aspiration. So when we first started, I had this aspiration of like democratizing quality coaching, right? And you can get quality coaching for for like reasonable amounts of money. We're not VC funded, uh, but we charged as if we were, right? And that was a mistake because I think it led to a lot of, I think all of us have like an, a reservoir of energy. And I think it led to a lot of it burning out over the next two to three years when we could have saved a lot of it. And we should have charged for how we were actually working, which is like like an actual nutritionist, right? We were working more than an, than an, even a typical nutritionist. So that was that was a that was a mistake. So it's like charge for what are your unit economics right now? Don't charge for an aspirational thing unless you know funding is coming your way or you plan to get funding for some reason, right? But if you're bootstrapped, I wouldn't say do that. That was a huge mistake. The second big thing I would say is the medium is the message. I think that was a hard-earned lesson for me. I think initially when I started coaching, we had a model where you talk to us and we coach you and we tell you what to do. And the problem is when you are, especially we were doing it using chat. And when you use chat, people are like, think about the mindset in which people use chat, right? It's kind of semi-distracted. It's like, I'm in the middle of like between two things and I'm going to do it. It's not a place where people are deeply thinking about their psychology or deeply trying to actually solve a problem, right? It's a very distracted state. And I thought we could cram all of, you know, our, our, our teaching, our guidance, our like teaching you how to fish basically into that medium, but that medium is only good for certain things. Mm. And it kind of made me rediscover the value of like why universities are structured the way they are, to be very honest. And then I realized like, okay, you have office hours or you have a classroom setting because it's perfect for troubleshooting, right? If someone has a problem, you can solve it. And that's perfect for that. But that's all that medium is good for. If you want someone to actually learn the foundations and actually do some reflection, you need to give them a, you need to have a course component alongside a, like a homework kind of thing that they can actually spend time on. And then, yeah, it made me rediscover like why university structured the way it is. And it's basically because each medium has a certain thing it's good at. And that's what you want to optimize for. Instead of trying to think you, I can do something special and somehow, you know, cram a bunch of stuff into one medium. And I think that that's maybe the biggest thing is like, go with what people's psychology is right now. And, and just default to that instead of thinking I can be special. And I can do things that are exceptions from the start, whether it comes to the revenue model, whether it comes to how your delivery or fulfillment of your services is, is designed, like really just rely on like, what is the base, right? Don't reinvent the wheel, go with the base and then learn from there. I, I wish I had known that. Yeah, I think people kind of default to what feels the most convenient, whether that's a communication method or something else. And they don't think of like the trade-offs of all, all of these things. Some things are inherently just better than others, but there's lots of mediums which there's just different positives and negatives to each kind of thing. And yeah, especially where, you know, obviously you're very interested in psychology. There's like good forms of friction, aren't there? <laughs> where it's, it's a little bit harder in some ways, but like, they're more people are more likely to like take it seriously, for example, or they're more likely to learn something or remember it kind of thing. 
it's like it's high, like you're saying it's higher friction to create videos for people than to like obviously send them like an automated email but it creates way more authenticity because <laughs> i think people like whether they realize it or not they understand that this person's made an effort and that resonates with them sort of thing there's been studies about like why when you see like a big outdoor advert for apple like in the subway or outdoors or in the super bowl it's not just about like what the message is it's like you see that they are obviously a serious legitimate company by the facts that they are in this place in the first place i think there's something to that with what you're saying Yes, exactly. It's the psychology of what it is, but then it's the context that comes alongside it and the assumptions that come alongside it. And I love what you said about the friction thing. I think that's the other thing, at least for anyone who's doing any kind of behavior change related stuff, is when you read a lot of Silicon Valley like advice, a lot of it is very much geared towards efficiency and convenience. Yeah. When it comes to behavior change, yes, that's efficient, but it's not effective in the long term. And it's like almost you need to ignore all of that advice to a certain degree where, yeah, the friction is good. <laughs> you know, friction is not good when you want to find someone to maybe clean your house or like do your emails, right? You, you want to do that quickly, that's fine. But then there are certain, I think behavior change is a category of things where convenience is not always a good thing. And you need to be, we're almost, I feel like part of figuring out the solution is figuring out what is good friction and what is too much friction. Yeah, it's definitely a happy, happy medium there somewhere. Um, are you familiar with Rory Sutherland's work? Yes, yes. I need to read his book. I think you mentioned to me that the last time we chatted. <laughs> now I do read the list. <laughs> I, think you'd, no, I think you'd love it, especially with, you know, the kind of stuff you're interested in for Coach Viva. But yeah, it just reminded me of this, like, there's loads of examples, but like one study is like, they tested like different messages and methods of getting people to donate to a charity. They tried like saying like, you know, like asking for like different amounts and like also different ways of like sending it. And they found by far the most successful one is just when they sent it in a, a nicer envelope, like better than any of like the offers they were doing and that kind of thing. And it's just kind of stuff that's not like to some people, maybe that is obvious, but like, I think to a lot of people it isn't. And they would just go for like, you know, if we use a cheaper envelope, we can send more of these letters to people so we'll make more money. But like they actually made more money from something completely different. So I think it's interesting. And I think a lot of people in like the tech and tech entrepreneurship and indie hackers world should read some more of this stuff. Because, you know, I used to actually work in the ad industry and people read all this stuff like from people like Rory Sutherland. But in tech, everyone's reading like, I don't know, Peter Thiel and like stuff that's like very different. And I think more people should think about that a lot of stuff that works isn't logical, basically. <laughs> yeah, you're spot on. I think that's been the biggest thing I've learned in the past five years is, is all of the stuff that you're talking about right now. I think that's been the biggest growth. And I think that's the, been the most correlated with growing our revenue and, 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 and growing our customer base. Are there any kind of books or blogs or pieces of content that really helps your thinking around this? Yes. I think a lot of the direct response marketing kind of stuff, I would say. I think I, similar to what you just said, actually, I, back in 2018, this is like one year after we officially started, we were stuck at about like a thousand to five, 1500 MRR. And I couldn't figure out how to grow it. And yeah. I was desperate to figure out what to do. And that caused me to be like, I must not be reading the right things. And it, I, I started looking at a lot of the direct response marketing things. I would say, if you want a high-level strategic overview of how 
marketing works when you're not funded and you're doing direct response marketing. I would say Dotcom Secrets is a great book, which gives you an overview. I think the mistake that I did after reading that book is I thought it gave me also the tactical knowledge, but that's not true. Like it's, it's a huge tree. And if you want to implement any part of it, I think you need to like go down that path and commit to it and like invest in other resources to learn it. So I would say, I think that's a really good starting point. If you're writing any kind of copy, I would say Expert Secrets is really good. He does a really great job explaining how people think as they're reading your... Those two books are really good. I think Alex Hormozzi's $100 million offers is really good when you're thinking about how to create an offer. And then I would say, it depends on what channel you're on. Like I think someone I was talking to asked me how much I had spent on YouTube or just learning YouTube, not even hiring editors and things. And I started doing the math and I was like, I think close to like 50,000 at this point. (laughs) But I think it comes down to like, those are, those are general things that will give you a big picture overview of like, how do I even think about this area? And then you need to like commit to like a one channel, right? I think zero to 1 million, if you're bootstrapped, I would say it's one offer, not one product, one offer. Different. There's a difference between the two, right? One offer, one channel, as Alex Armazi says, right? And one simple like pricing model to go with it, right? And one avatar, basically. That's all you need. And then once you have that nail, like commit at least two years and at least $10,000 to just like learning <laughs> specifically that thing. What uh, of your effort is spent on YouTube versus other channels? Is that like your main app? 100%. There's no other channel that I work on. <laughs> I love what you said about like the difference between like, you know, having one offer and one product. Can you dive a bit more into that? I think... A product is something with features. So let's say this bottle, right? I think this is a product and I could say like, yes, it keeps my stuff warm or cold. You know, like if I start describing it like that, I'm describing the product, right? That holds this much water, blah, 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 that kind of thing. But then when you start talking about an offer, an offer is very much focused on what is the problem this is solving. So if I put this product on Amazon, it's a price war to the bottom, basically, right? It's whatever the cheapest is wins with the same features. But then if I make it into an offer where I'm like, this is a bottle that is specifically for indie hackers, right? And the reason it is for indie hackers is because I know you guys need your coffee hot and that's what it does with this. And I'm going to throw in basically a book that is about balancing work ethic with rest ethic and productivity and like all of these things. And when I start like talking about it in that way. And I'm attached and I'm attaching yes products that are solving the problem, but it's not just about this, right? When I start talking about it that way, what I've done is I've now created an offer. And the offer is very much focused on the benefits of this thing and what is the problem that it is solving versus the feature for this thing. Right. And once I start saying these things that it is only for indie hackers and it's only for these reasons, now I am charging based on value. I'm not charging based on cost. And when you're charging based on value, that gives you the room to, first of all, not just be run profitable, but also to have the money you need to innovate. I think that is one of the biggest things. Like I think when you're VC backed, you can afford to be below run profitable even, right? Your unit economics don't need to work. But when you're bootstrapped, I think the less margins you have, the crappier your product is going to be because you don't have enough money to reinvest into making a quality product and you're just like treading water. So yeah, I would say if, you, if you're bootstrapped, always make an offer, don't make a product. 
When you were building Coach Viva, is there any kind of things that happened like where you, you look back and think, this is like my lowest moment building this? Like this was like the biggest challenge we had. I wasn't sure we could get out. So like, is there anything that comes to mind for that? And if so, like, what did you do to sort of dig yourself out of that hole? I think it was when I was in Mexico and I was for, for 10 weeks, uh, our entire company was in Mexico and I felt completely stuck. I think the most difficult part in my journey is when I feel like I'm out of ideas. I think as long as I have ideas, I have hope. And I think those are tend to be the most difficult parts for me. But I think there is a clear solution. And I'm glad I, I found that, which is just like the reason I don't have ideas is because I'm not reading broadly enough. And by broadly enough, I started following people that I don't understand why people are buying from them, like you know MLM people, right? I had an instinctual reaction to be like, how are, how are they even successful? Like, why are people doing this kind of thing? Why are people buying from them? And I was like, there must be something that they're doing right. And I don't necessarily want to do exactly what they're doing, but I think there's something to learn here. And once I like started breaking all those, I think like almost boundaries I had on who I would read from, what I would read. It's like, just break all those boundaries and just go like, just, just read from anyone who is able to do something that you want to be able to do. And that, then all the ideas started coming in and that, that really helped, but it was really difficult kind of making that, that transition because even after I read that, it was like another, it was, it was a whole new area. It took at least a year, I would say, to even dig myself out of that beyond 1500 MRR. Yeah, were there any particularly unexpected areas of inspiration when you started reading more broadly there? I think the stuff from Russell Brunson, to be honest. Like if you go to any the the dot-com secrets author and the expert secret, if you go to his website, I don't think if I was not that desperate, I don't think I would have bought that book. Because if you go to his website, it looks like it holds down. Like there's arrows blinking at you. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it looks like a scam when you go there. The page just goes on and on and on and on. And uh, I was just like, really looking back, I'm like, wow, I, I bought that book. I just like punched in my credit card and I'm like, I'm going to read this thing. So yeah, that was one of the surprises of like just how desperate I was at that time. Yeah, I feel you. And you know what? Those, um, so they were dot com secrets, expert secrets, and $100 million offers, I think you mentioned. It's like books that really helps. I don't think I've actually heard anyone recommend those before. And like, I think that's really interesting. I think I feel like a lot of people, when you listen to like sort of a typical sort of indie hackers podcast or whatever, people have a lot of similar inspiration sort of thing. But obviously, like there's some stuff that just because something's more popular doesn't mean it's better necessarily. So that direct response stuff you talked about, I'm going to check that out. Like I remember from back in the ad industry days, people would, you know, talk about the old school direct mail, direct response people as and they would send out like, you know, like a letter, like basically you're writing something where you're trying to get someone to send you money back, like in a check or something from like the eighties. And you just have to be really good at your craft. and some things just work. Like there's some tactics which just throughout time, like it just works and you should learn what those things are is what I've learned. Exactly. Exactly. I think given what do you, the example you get from Rory Sutherland, right? Like, I think those are the kinds of things that, yeah, direct response marketers also talk about, right? Like I think, if a problem has existed for a long time, you can assume that convenience is not the problem. It's There's not a logical solution that is needed. It's a psychological one. I think someone said that. I don't remember who, but it really resonates with me. And I think this stuff just teaches so much about your audience. Like, why do they behave the way that they do? 
And I think a lot of the times they don't know why they're behaving the way that they do. But as the person who is trying to help them, it's your job to figure it out. And these books are just like, you know, don't bring the the wheel. Like a lot of this I've figured out. I would say besides all of this, I haven't mentioned sales, but I will say after engineering and like the mindset that is needed for that, I would say sales has been the biggest compounding interest skill I have learned, (laughs) period. And the reason for that is it goes back to the kinds of things we're talking about because marketing is over like a long period of time. You're like nurturing, you're like learning things. But then when you talk about sales and I know sales gets a bad rep, but all sales really is, is showing the person you're talking to with clarity what their problem is and where they want to get to. That's it. Because a lot of us, we're so in our minds, we don't have a clear idea of what is our problem, where do we want to get to, and what is the gap that is stopping us from getting there, right? That is all it is. And then once you paint that picture, you just sit back and you just like let them make a decision whether this is a priority for them or not. And sometimes it's not the right time. It's not really a priority. But that's all really what sales is. And just being able to do that really well, I would say spin selling is a great book to that. That's funny. Yeah. Spin selling is a great book that, that lays the foundation for that. Psycho-cybernetics, I think that's a great book into human psychology. Uh, it's from a plastic surgeon who figured out that even after getting plastic surgery, people were not happy. And he was like, why are people not happy? They look like they want to look. And then he went and figured out what, what is going on. And it's, it's a great book on human psychology as well. So I think these two books for sales are like really great. That's fascinating. I think popular culture has done a bit of a disservice to sales and like what sales is. Like, I don't know if you've seen that movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross, where they're just kind of like, no, it's got um, Alec Baldwin and they're, they're just like basically a bunch of salespeople like yelling at people down the phone and like, you know, whoever's the loudest and makes the most calls, makes the most money. But like, there's just obviously so much kind of more to it. And like, you don't have to be that sort of character to like be good at sales. Like there's a lot of, a lot of it is almost like closer to research, like understanding people and what their goals are. Yeah, it's almost like being a short time like guide is all it is, right? I think I think ethical sales, which is what we do, is is all that is. It's like being a guide and being able to have incisive insight into the psychology of the person you're talking to, and then bring that uh, surface that in the conversation and let them decide what they want to do with it, right? It's not about manipulating someone. It's not about forcing anyone to do anything. For sure. I feel like you got a lot of amazing advice for budding and, you know, and also experienced founders, Richard. If you had to like summarize like your kind of most common advice that you give to like new indie hackers and stuff, well, what are those things? I think the biggest one that I usually notice is, I think this is a common one. People build a lot more than they need to before <laughs> they start selling. And I think it's important to start selling not because necessarily you even want to get to realm and profitable, but do you even have, are you even in the ballpark of what people need? What do they actually want? And it's such a long journey. Like I think who we thought our audience was is so different than who our audience is right now. And you have like, you just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. The more you try to like, see like, what, what do people prioritize? And the easiest way to figure out like, what do people want? What do people prioritize? Is if they will give money to you. So unless you're building a product for developers, I think you can get away with the just duct taping. And if people are not are not willing to put up with the duct tape solution, it's not a deep enough problem. And I think a lot of people have said this, but it's it's it rings true in my experience as well. So I would say if, unless you're building for developers, give yourself like a week or two max. 
I, I like to put those kinds of deadlines on myself, which is just like, it forces me to like put something, get something out there and then be like, okay, I got something and I'm going to just start talking to people who can use this. And when they use it, yes, it's not perfect, but it will teach you a lot more about what is exactly that they're interested in. I think that's great advice. And I think it's a good time to open up to the floor. If anyone has any questions for Richa, do you mind posting them in the chat now? So yeah, there's been a a few questions there. So uh, what is your online and offline mix? That's for marketing, I assume. Got it. I don't have anything offline. It's all literally just YouTube. And I would say, yeah, this has been my finding, which is zero to one million is just one channel, (laughs) one offer, one avatar. That's it. I love that discipline, actually. Like, I sometimes find it difficult to like say, okay, let's just do this this one thing and like experiment with a few things. But it's hard to have that discipline. I'm I'm not gonna I, I will admit, I'm not gonna lie. Like I I do feel very tempted to start TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been seeing some people like they you know they post clips to TikTok and like sometimes, well you know it's hard to know how much of it survivorship bias. But you always hear about the ones that are like going viral on TikTok after creating some content somewhere else, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, big fun. So it's on, on, online versus offline for coaching. Oh, got it. Yeah. So it's all online. We don't do anything offline even for coaching. So the way that we have the program is it's a, it's a very university kind of model. So we have a course and homework for teaching them how to fish because that requires time <laughs> to, to learn anything. And then we have calls and we also have a way to message us to, to actually get you know, text-based coaching voice-based coaching. And and that's mainly for like, if they have questions, they're stuck for troubleshooting reasons. So that's like our mix. And then we have also like our our own private app, which is just tools to be able to track for the data collection part. Awesome. Thanks for that, Richa. Um, Where on on it being a subscription versus, is it a subscription-based model? And what's your MRR, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, I think you mentioned that earlier, but yeah, just to hand over to you, Richa, that. Yeah, so it used to be a subscription-based model. It's not a subscription-based model right now. When we had a subscription-based model, especially for behavior change, it leads to the wrong kinds of incentives for people. I think, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is like, what is the problem we're solving and what is the default psychology around things, right? So if I give people, let's say a three-month deadline, people are going to artificially have perfect weeks. Suddenly they have all the time to go to the gym and eat exactly the right things, right? But it's not going to last after those three months. And then they're going to back and be back to their real life. So what we realized was that kind of model is just like, not like, why are we here? Right? (laughs) Like, what is the purpose of our coaching if they're just going to regress after that? So we changed from and so the subscription based monthly subscription based model doesn't work for us just because of the problem we're solving. So instead, what we have right now is a lifetime based membership. Uh, So it's one time membership, and it allows people to use the program as a training ground with imperfect weeks. And to use us as training wheels of what does it take to actually get to lifelong maintenance and their goal weight. Now that said, I, you know, that said we have a lifetime model right now. So we went from like a monthly thing all the way to the other extreme. And I think we're learning lessons around like, does this remove urgency? Because there's also the human psychology part where you need kind of deadlines almost to get yourself moving sometimes. So I think that is data that we're collecting and we might, again, pull it back depending on the data on like, okay, maybe lifetime is too long because it removes all urgency. What is the sweet spot here? Is it a year? Is it two years? Whatever that might be. So that's what it is right now. Nice one. I know Jason's just asking about your pricing. 
Yeah. So it's the lifetime model is $3,000. If you are, if you're a good fit, if you decide you're not a good fit, and if you want to come back later on, we are suspicious of you about it being a good fit. So as a way to kind of like, like be like, are you, are you really sure this is a good fit kind of thing? Or are you kind of just desperate at this point? We raise the price to $4,000 as a way to disincentivize almost because to us, what's more important is no solution is for everybody. Like, uh, like we're not Netflix, right? Like we're not trying to get the whole world onto Netflix. Every kind of coach is a good fit for a certain type of student. And we want to get more of the kind that is a mix with us instead of everybody. And so the pricing model also helps, is, is part of the matrix of things that we use to filter down to the people that are a fit with us and therefore we would actually enjoy. It's sustainable for us. I think that's the main thing. I think we talk a lot about like getting clients, but then what you want to do is I think you want to get your dream clients. Who are the people who won't let who won't make me hate my job <laughs> every day? And you really, and this is something that is really hard to do when you're when you're not at Robin Profitable. But I think we kind of switched our mindset even before we got to Robin Profitable. And I think that was one of the reasons we got to Robin Profitable more quickly, is because we just stopped being like you know, I, I don't care about getting to wrong profitable. I care more that I actually enjoy what I'm doing and it's not energy draining for me. So we use pricing in that way as well, which is why we have it the way we do. Question from Dave on what PPC platform were you using? So like ad, ad platform? Yeah. So we used, mainly we tried on Facebook. We actually even got an agency to help us with that. And I don't think we ever figured out the funnel with the agency either. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the questions, everyone. I think that's everything. So Richa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, it was a fantastic chat. I definitely learned a lot. Hopefully everyone else did. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your week and hopefully uh, be talking to you again very soon. But thanks again. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Richa. Thank you, everyone.